0: Ja, da ist der äh, ja, Jereba. This is Radio Today with a... Ja. Wie war's? What is today? Lange. Was, was haben wir heute? Heute haben wir einen... Genau. Am 7. Den 7. November. Was war da? Am 7. Am November. Da waren, waren ein paar Geschichten. Also, geschichtliche Geschichten... What was that? What was there? The seventh November. It was something. That, some historical history hysteria. What was it? Ja, aber hört es selber. Hören Sie selbst. Aber Sie wissen es ja selber. Ihr wisst es ja. But just listen. But of course you know it. Seventh. This is This is Radio
1: In the hierarchy of human beings whose footprints on history can never be erased for good or ill, he was perhaps unique. He was small and unkempt, brilliant and pitiless and unforgettable. He was adored and execrated in life and almost deified in death. He is remembered today wherever men's affairs have a meaning, with veneration or hatred, but never without respect. On the shores of the Volga, in a Tartar country, in the very landlocked centre of the enormous empire of Russia, was the town of Simbirsk, one provincial town out of thousands. There, in 1870, in the respectable, solid bourgeois home of a provincial bureaucrat, was born Vladimir Ilyich, the third child and second son. His family was simple and secure. His father was a government inspector of schools, a man of character and cultivation, Ilya Nikolaevich Ulyanov. Around him were always the reminders that to oppose the regime meant suffering. A thousand miles away in St. Petersburg, when the young Ulyanov was seventeen, the thing happened that was to shadow his life like a scar. His sister Anna and his older brother Alexander were implicated in a plot to kill the Tsar. Alexander was arrested, asked for no mercy, and was hanged. From then on, he was marked the brother of an assassin. At Kazan, he was involved in a student's protest and banished from the university. Already, he had discovered Karl Marx, his personal revelation, the manual for his own place in history. Denied the right to study, he went to rusticate with his family near Samara. It wasn't hard for a rebel to find fuel for his fury in the country life around, in a Russia of a hundred million peasants who lived their racked and wretched lives forever on the edge of famine, scratching what they could from their outworked and ungenerous earth. They let Lenin into St. Petersburg at last, to the law school. Here was the other side of the Russian picture, the urban proletarian picture. Here, as he sailed through his four-year law course in one year, he reached his creed that today's revolutions are born always in cities. On this proposition, he began to work. In his workers' lodging, he met the girl Nadezhda Konstantinova Krupskaya, the militant feminist Marxist, who by and by became his wife. Russia was changing, slowly groping to the new 19th century industrialization. The 19th century factories and workshops were huge and primitive. They were, like Russia, on a monstrous scale and, like Russia, suffocated in their own ineffectual size. In them grew a seething and inarticulate resentment, expressed in all manner of groups of protest, the incoherent raw material of revolt, with neither motive power nor guide. In the huge oil fields of Baku, rebellion was lost, as everywhere else, in an almost unconquerable pit of apathy. And above it all, ineffably remote, lingered the strangest phenomenon of all. For 400 years, the Tsars had ruled and here was the last, Nikolai Alexandrovich Romanov, by the grace of God, emperor of all the Russia, Tsar of Moscow and Kiev, Tsar of Astrakhan, Tsar of Poland and Siberia, Grand Duke of Lithuania and Finland, and much else. In 1895, Lenin went abroad for the first time, and in Geneva, he met the founding father of the Russian socialist movement, Georgi Valentinovich Plekhanov, living in exile. Lenin was to become his bitter foe, but not yet. So he returned to Russia and founded by Julius Martov the forbidden League of Struggle for the liberation of the working class. And he was arrested. For 14 months he stayed in jail. There was, of course, no question of a trial. Yes, he had abundant books, and he had no special trouble smuggling out of prison the revolutionary chats he was there for writing. He grew expert at the techniques of invisible writing and ciphers. At the end of his time, they sent him to Siberia. In two months to reach his place of exile at far part of the East. There he waited and hunted and shot and read and wrote interming. Two years later, Nadezhda Krupskaya too was exiled to Siberia. The authorities, obligingly, let her join Lenin, and there she and Lenin were married. By now, the Social Democrats were on the run. Lenin found his way to Munich, where, with Martov, Petrosov, and 1900. Hunter, he founded the rebel paper Iskra, The Spark. It was smuggled into Russia by many people, among them the young Georgian activist Joseph Jugashvili, later to be known as Stalin. The paper Iskra became the underground gospel of Russian socialism. The worker's cells began to form in secret everywhere. Lenin's real wanderings began. His restless search for a secure base brought him and Krupska in 1902 to London, forever writing, haunting the British Museum reading room. Already the exiles were obsessed by their own internal conflicts. Sometimes it seemed the technique of revolution was more important than the end. But the flood of advice and instruction filtered back to the Russian underground. In Russia, the mounting miseries suddenly found a momentary expression in a wave of strikes and risings, and Lenin was still far away. It was the Tsar's bad luck or folly that brought at this moment the Russian war against Japan, a futile war destined for disaster. In Russia, wars have always carried revolution in their wake. But the 1905 revolt began in a peaceful protest of almost excessive loyalty. A quiet priest called Father Gapon led 200,000 men, women and children to the Winter Palace singing God Save the Tsar and praying simply for an eight-hour day. And the guards opened fire on More than 500 died. That was the bloody Sunday of January, 1905. Everywhere the crowds came out in a chain of outbursts, defying the Cossacks, driven to a desperation of protest Russia had not known before. He hurried back to St. Petersburg. But he was wrong. The rising was crushed, the leaders imprisoned. In Moscow, the strikers held out a little longer, furiously encouraged by Lenin. But the army was still loyal to the Tsar, and the army had the guns. The cavalry, the resources, and the confidence. The strikers had defeat and death. The 1905 revolt was confused and incoherent, but it brought the whole revolutionary mood into the open. The socialist movement was now an evident part of the political pattern of Russia. Once again, Lenin escaped arrest and fled to Paris. There, in the usual backroom of the exile's life, he wrote and argued and denounced all who disagreed. Lenin insisted that only he and his group of uncompromising Marxists were Bolsheviks, the majority. The moderations of Plekhanov and his life were mentioned, the minority. Capri, improbably enough, was on the list of revolutionary rendezvous. There Lenin went to visit Maxim Gorky, and there were more arid intellectual contentions. In Prague, at the party conference of 1912, came Lenin's final breach with the old comrades. From now on, Lenin and the Bolsheviks were out to win the revolution their way. That year in Russia, the revolt stirred again. Of all Russia's melancholy workers, those of the leaner mines were the most enslaved and degraded. They went on strike, and the soldiers from St. Petersburg shot down an unarmed meeting and 270 were killed on the spot. At that, there rose in Europe a howl of horror and protest so loud, and in Russia, a national strike so great, that a certain awe fell on the government, and a few tentative measures of conciliation came about. Lenin was closing in. He moved his base to Krakow in Galicia, but all this time, another party was at work, the Okhrana, the Tsarist secret service. By now, they were well on the revolutionary movement. They had widely infiltrated it. They actually took part in smuggling the papers, running the guns, meanwhile encouraging the schisms and retarding the movement. But, and it was somehow very Russian, even the secret service men were divided. Some of them became real revolution. A wave of patriotism drove the conception of revolution into abeyance. Lenin was consumed with impatience. What had happened to European socialism? Where was the workers' solidarity that should quench this war? The Russian army was immense. In spite of its parade ground appearance, it was also unprepared, underarmed, underfed, ill-led, and doomed. In their millions, the Russian soldiers vanished into the wintry wilderness of Poland to defeat after defeat, to catastrophe after catastrophe. Uh. At least four million never came back. At home, the privations grew almost beyond the point of toleration. Uh. The Russian mood alternated between hysteria and Slavonic despair. By 1917, it was a country ripe for chaos, and Lenin was not there. By now, he was in Zurich. What detonated the February Revolution was small enough an industrial dispute in the Putilov works in Moscow. The immense difference between this and all that had gone before was that now the soldiers were moving to the side of the citizens. Most of the garrison of Petrograd, as the capital was now called, moved over to the workers, the leaderless demonstrators who were now storming and parading streets. This wasn't politics. The politics were to come. And now the Tsar had gone. He'd been challenged and had abdicated. After four centuries, Russia had no Tsar. And it still had no Lenin. In the austere bourgeois peace of Switzerland, Lenin was frantic to return. The revolution for which he'd lived his life had begun, and he wasn't there. It would go by default. It would get into the wrong hands. Yet how could he, Lenin, cross the battlefields of a Europe at war? Petrograd, without its Tsar and without a Lenin, was now an arena for politicians contending for power. The seething impatience of Lenin and the exiles of Zurich produced a melodrama worthy of the time the famous sealed train that no one might leave nor enter on its journey. The Germans, most eager to get a good disruptive force like Lenin back among their enemies, agreed to send him there by train. Some 30 men and women travelled on that famous train, the hard core of the exile revolution. Lenin, Zinoviev, Radek, Klara Zetkin, Sokolnikov, all pipelined through a Europe at war back to a Russia they had none of them seen for years. And so, after 12 years, Lenin returned to the Finland station. The new battle was joined. The provisional government wanted order at home and victory in the war. Lenin and the Bolsheviks wanted the revolution under the control of the revolutionary and professional party workers, and they wanted an end to the war, any end. This Lenin expounded in the April thesis to the Petrograd Council of Soviets. The slogan was, land, bread, peace. In 1917, then, the two ablest Marxists in the world were brought together again in guarded friendship with the return from America of Trotsky. His task was to be to end the war. In the minds of the soldiers, it was already ended. Everywhere along the German front, the opposing armies were fraternizing, grateful for any respite from this cruel campaign. Tsar's army defected in tens of thousands. Whatever might be said in Russia, their war was over. That much of the revolution was for them accomplished. In Petrograd, the revolution was established, and what had in fact changed. Lenin continually demanded that the provisional government give way to a republic of the proletariat and an end to the war. That July brought out three hundred thousand people into the streets. On the other side, Kerensky, whose father had taught Lenin, Sinbirsky. He was prime minister, and he subdued the impatient Bolsheviks. Their headquarters, the commandeered house of the ballerina Kresinskaya, was sacked. The left was routed. Lenin, disguised as a railwayman, slipped over into Finland, indicted for treason. For now, the story was, Lenin was a German agent, sent in by the Germans, paid to end the war. He furiously denied it, but hiding didn't help. Now, in 1917, with Lenin still away, the campaign was on for the elections for the Constituent Assembly. The Bolsheviks remained in a high condition of exhilaration. As they had once cried, the Tsar must go, they now cried, Kerensky must go. Power to the Soviets. Yet, when the 42 million votes came to be cast later, the Bolsheviks were to get less than 10 million. The other social revolutionaries got 21 million. 58%. Lenin said, the interests of the revolution stand over those of the constituent assembly. The assembly never met again. Now both sides of this bitter division of the band of brothers were arming openly, and as openly making ready for the struggle for power. Lenin was still away, but his momentum had persuaded the Marxists of the town and the peasants from the disintegrating army to opt no longer for Kerensky and the Allies, but for Lenin and the end of war. Tsarist officers faced with this dilemma were torn with uncertainties. Yet life went on, in some bizarre way, the social scene of the Russian capital continued to function for the phantoms of the old regime.
2: Trotsky, to pick somebody, uh who you remember, uh, Once he was charged in the 1930s uh, with agreeing with the fascists in his condemnation of the Soviet Union. And he pointed out that his critique was to be true. He wasn't going to abandon it if somebody else happened to say it for different reasons. So the question is about the Soviet Union, and particularly about Lenin. So what was Leninism? Well, uh, here we have to look at the facts. Now, you you look at the facts, I think here's what you find. Lenin was a right-wing deviation of the socialist movement, and he was so regarded. He was regarded as that by the Marxists, by the mainstream Marxists. We've forgotten who the mainstream Marxists were because they lost. And you only remember the guys who won. But if you go back to, the, to that period, uh, the mainstream Marxists were people like, for example, Anton Panakuk, who was head of education for the, uh, uh, for the Marxist movement and a serious, he's the one, who, one of the people who Lenin later denounced as an infantile leftist, uh, but he was one of the leading intellectuals of the actual Marxist movement. Uh, Rosa Luxemburg was another mainstream Marxist, and there were others, and they were very critical. In fact, Trotsky was one up until 1917. Uh, they were all very critical of Leninism because of this, what they regarded as this opportunistic vanguardism, uh, the idea that the radical intelligentsia were going to exploit popular movements to seize state power and then to use that state power to whip the population into the society that they chose. Now, that was quite inconsistent with Marxism as understood by the mainstream sort of, I'd say, left Marxists. From this point of view, Bolshevism was a right-wing deviation. Trotsky made the same points up till 1917. Now, when Lenin came back to Russia, uh, in uh, April 1917, he took a different line, quite a different line from the one he'd had in the past. There, you take a look at Lenin's work; it shifted character in April 17. In April 1917, it became kind of libertarian. Uh, that's when he came out with the April Theses, and that's when he wrote *State and Democracy*. It came out, it came out a year later, but that's when it was written. And these were uh, a *State and Revolution*. These these were basically libertarian works. They were very much more in the, main, in the mainstream of sort of left uh, libertarian socialism from sort of you know, this range that goes from anarchism over to left Marxism of the Pana Luxembourg luxemburg variety. Uh, and he talked about Soviets and the need for you know, a workers organization and so on. And in fact, came really closer to what the essence of socialism was always understood to be. After all, the core of socialism was understood to be workers control over production. That was the core. That's where you begin with. Then you go on to other things. But the beginning is control by the workers over production. That's where it begins. Uh, then Lenin took power in October 1917 in what's called a revolution, but in my view ought to be called a coup. Uh, and, the, uh, then the, and things followed that coup, or revolution, if you want to call it that. Uh, one of the things that followed it was the immediate moves to destroy the Soviets and the factory councils. Those were some of the first moves of Lenin and Trotsky after they took, Trotsky joined at that point, uh, after they took state power. In fact, if you look at what Lenin wrote after that period or did, you'll find it's a reversion to the earlier position. This sort of left deviation uh, is that, a deviation. You could ask why. In my view, it was just opportunistic. Uh, He knew that in order to gain power, he was going to have to go along with the popular currents that were developing, which were, in fact, spontaneous and libertarian and uh, socialist, as most popular movements are, have been, in fact, since the 17th century, and being an astute politician, which he was, he sort of went along with that and talked the line that the people wanted to hear. It's just like when an American politician goes somewhere and his pollsters tell him, say so-and-so, and he says it, it doesn't mean he believes it. Uh, and I think Lenin was doing the same thing without polls. Uh, in any event, whatever your interpretation is, when he took power, He reverted to the former vanguardism uh, and moved at once to eliminate the organs of workers' control. Now, that meant he was moving to destroy socialism, if socialism has as its core workers' control over production. Uh, The Soviets and the factory councils were instruments of workers' control. And same, uh, you could say they're defective instruments. They worked out better and so on. Yeah, no doubt. But they were the instruments that had been developed in the course of popular struggle for, to implement basically workers' control, and those were the first things to go. By early 1918, this is now, it's still really before the Civil War set in, uh, Lenin's view was pretty clearly expressed. It was the view that uh, both he and Trotsky took the position that uh, what you need is what, what Trotsky called a labor army, which is submissive to the uh, control of a single leader. I said, modern you know, progress and development and socialism requires that the mass of the population subordinate themselves to a single leader uh, in a disciplined workforce. Well, that has absolutely nothing to do with socialism, in fact, it's the exact opposite of it. Uh, and uh, was criticized uh, for that by the, in a sense, in a spirit of some solidarity, because, the re- you know, the revolutionary forces were still operative, it was criti- he was criticized for that by people like Rosa Luxemburg and by... Uh, uh, Panakuk and Gorter and the other mainstream sort of left Marxists. And, that, and I think they were right. Uh, it seems to me that, uh, and, and then it just goes on from there. I mean, Lenin reconstructed the czarist systems of oppression, often more efficiently, Cheka, KGB, and uh, other techniques of control and oppression. I think from that point on, there was nothing remotely like socialism in the Soviet Union. I think it was, in fact, uh, in my view, it was a precursor of Later forms of totalitarianism. Now, you know, you could, uh, that's what I think happened, and I think that's what you discover if you look at the facts. Uh, Now, why is it called socialism? Well, I think there, see, I think that's complicated, and we should look at it. There's two, the the Soviet Union calls it socialism, Uh, and, you know, after they took control of the, they did take control pretty soon of most of the international socialist movement, uh, because primarily of the prestige of having created. Uh, something sort of socialism. Incidentally, just a side remark. Lenin remained, despite it all, a sort of an orthodox Marxist in many respects. Uh, and as an orthodox Marxist, he didn't believe that it was possible to have socialism in the Soviet Union. Uh, this was supposed to be up to his death, or you know, shortly before his death, when he was still writing, you know, speaking lucidly. He took, kept the view that uh, the Soviet Revolution was a holding action. They were just going kind to of hold things in place until the real revolution took place in Germany, because the revolution, according to Marx 's doctrine, was going to take place in the most advanced uh, sector of uh, modern cap- of modern industrial capitalism, you know for all the reasons that you read about in marx that 's where the revolution had to take place. obviously that wasn 't the Soviet Union, so there couldn 't be socialism there, it was just some kind of holding action, and that presumably gave some sort of justification for uh, eliminating the socialist institutions. I don't think it's a real justification, but probably that was the internal justification. Uh, And again, in in taking that view, he was in accord with the mainstream Marxist tradition. Uh, Well, after that comes the view that all of this is socialism. And why should the communist parties take that view? I think the reason is because they wanted to uh, sort of uh, exploit the moral force of socialism, which was quite real. You know, It's kind of hard to remember that today. But at that time, it was very real. This was regarded as a, you know, as, pro- as a progressive moral force. And by associating their own destruction of socialism with the aura of socialism, they hoped to gain credit in the working classes and other uh, um, uh, progressive sectors. Uh, now, the West also identified that with socialism. And they did it for the opposite reason. They wanted to associate socialism with the brutality of the Russian state that undermined socialism. So what you had is that the two major world propaganda agencies, uh, for their own quite different reasons, were claiming that this is socialism, that this destruction of socialism is socialism. And it's very hard to break out of the control of the world's two major propaganda agencies when they agree. They agreed for different reasons, uh, but uh, they basically agreed, and that then became doctrine and dogma. Well, I think people should ask whether that's true. Take a look back and uh, see whether the moves that Lenin took, and that Trotsky supported him in taking, and that they both advocated, had anything to do with socialism as it was understood by, say, in the Marxist tradition or in the left libertarian tradition. And I think the answer that you'll discover when you look at that is that they didn't. In fact, this was a destruction of socialist institutions. Well, you know, this may be true or it may be false, but if it's true, and I think the evidence pretty strongly supports it, then I don't see any reason why we shouldn't express that fact. And I certainly don't think that we should be deterred in expressing this fact if other people who's, you know, fascists or whatever, happen to condemn the Soviet Union, just for the same reasons that Trotsky mentioned in the 1930s.
0: Radi Yerevan, this is Radi Yerevan, today with what kind of date we have? Who was that Mr. Ulyanov? Heute mit was für ein Datum haben wir heute? Und wer war der Herr Ulyanov?
1: Lenin returned and the party's object was proclaimed, civil war. Now, in October 1917, the thing that had been a generation in gestation burst forth, the ten days that shook the world. The cruiser Aurora was ordered out to sea and refused to go. Street by street and building by building, the Bolsheviks took over only the Winter Palace was holding out. The Aurora opened fire and it surrendered. And out of all this sound and fury, victory came with practically no one getting hurt. In the Winter Palace it came true at last. Lenin handed over all power to the Soviets. For the first time, Bolshevik meant what it said the majority. In an oddly pedantic phrase, Vladimir Lenin told the nation We shall now proceed to construct the Socialist Order. But only now did the real problems begin. Now, for the Bolsheviks and for Vladimir Lenin, began the real struggle. As he dedicated the memorial to Karl Marx and Engels, Lenin knew this with a dire certainty. The bread ration was down to two ounces a day. There was no fuel for the factories. Lenin could, and did, ordain instant socialism, abolishing private enterprise, nationalizing banks and industry, annulling state debts. But he knew that the October victory had not abolished the forces of opposition. He foresaw, rightly, the coming Civil War. But first he had to get out of the Great War, the World War. That was Trotsky's job. And at Brest-Litovsk, it was done. Russia had lost almost a third of her population, a quarter of her land, and half her industry. The capital of Soviet Russia was moved to Moscow, miles inland, less vulnerable, less identified with the vanished court. Behind the Kremlin walls, Vladimir Ilyich Lenin set up a seat to state authority. His personal apartments were ordinary to the point of stocking. He was, after all, used to austerity, quite careless of all possessions. Not every Russian may have shared this euphoria. Many who had shared in no revolution. On the contrary, the officials and merchants who had opposed it, they too were set to work in the job of reconstruction. And they had no choice. The civil war was on the way. Lenin, reviewing the nucleus of the new Red Army, could only guess what it might face at any moment. The one thing he needed was time and peace and opportunity to gain experience and consolidate. And that he did not get. The outside world now fell upon the confusions of the Soviet state. The Germans marched on the Ukraine and ravaged it to protect it, as they loudly claimed, from the revolution. The British landed their marines at Archangel, more than 10,000 in a few months. They occupied it, overthrew the local Soviets, and marched on. In the Far East, there came the Japanese, 70,000 of them, followed by 9,000 Americans. Against all this, the raw and improvised Red Army. At first, it was only about 150,000 strong. Most of them already had three years of Tsar's war behind them. They could have done without another. Now, they had to contend with the world, it seemed, on a front of 5,000 miles. They were short of everything. Uniform, guns, food. Their great hope was that they would grow with partisans along the way. The Soviets were beaten back all over Russia. To check this was the task of Trotsky. His work was desperate and fasting, but we will look in vain for a word of praise in the Soviet records of today. All Russia was now an armed camp. This was, in effect, one world against another. The first constipation of communism versus the rest. No one in those bloody days had a monopoly of cruelty or fear. At this time, there came an act that seemed curiously incidental. On July the 16th, 1918, the Tsar and his family were shot dead. The dynasty of the Romanovs was wiped off the face of the earth. In any case, death was everywhere. In August, it reached out for Lenin. As he left a Moscow meeting, a woman called Kaplan fired two shots. They hit him in the chest and shoulder. He nearly died, protesting, why should they make me suffer so? But that was not his time to die. He recovered quickly. By the spring of 1919, the counter-revolutionists and the interventionists had taken six-sevenths of Russia from the Communists. Moscow was under siege. So much hope was resting on the coming European Revolution, and a leader of the Hungarian Communist Movement was welcomed as its envoy. When the workers everywhere had thrown off their chains, Russia would surge forward at their head. But was it when, or if? All over Russia, then, the huge morale-building campaign grew. Here was the heyday of desperate oratory, the frantic argument that things could not be as fateful as they seemed. All the major figures of the party said so, endlessly, in a mounting desperation. Sverdlov, Kalinin, Molotov, Orjanakidze, Stalin, all in their different ways insisted on the same thing. After all these awful years, must we lose now? Slowly it began to work. the recruits poured in, the partisan forces built up. They multiplied in their thousands, and they died in their thousands too. And slowly their growth came to exceed their extinction. Lenin spared nothing and nobody. He urged and demanded and insisted. He was without pity for anyone, including himself. It took three years. The interventionists were dispersed. And Soviet Russia was at last, and for the first time, on its own. The counter-revolution had collapsed. The interventionists were dispersed. And Soviet Russia was at last, and for the first time, on its own. In those fantastic days of 1920, the sun seemed to have risen at last, and the millennium was at hand. The infant experiment in the Soviet principle had taken on the giants of the world and held them, and challenged them, and beaten them. Here is the apotheosis of the career of Vladimir Ilyich Julianov, the prophet Lenin, the student and jailbird and exile and teacher and conspirator and doctrinaire of the century's most extreme philosophy, supreme at last. But over what? A nation torn and destroyed and almost demolished, a country reduced to scratching for existence among the debris of a fearsome and brutal war. Three years had been lost, or stolen. Lenin and the Soviets had been handed back a ravaged and deliried land, its industries beaten and broken to a standstill, its resources reduced to rubble, the very face of the country, scarred and distorted, set back a decade. The nation's communications were almost totally broken to bits in a vast country where they'd never been adequate and now destroyed. This was the problem for Lenin. This was the post-revolutionary problem, for which none of the political revelations of Marx, or indeed of Lenin, had provided. This problem, at least, could not be solved by words, however skillful, however orthodox. Russia was now a land of refugees. Three million people without a roof, freed from capitalism, and at the same time from everything else, depending now on a socialist state very nearly as desperate as they themselves. It created what almost all revolutions create, the new community of the dispossessed. The Soviet state was born to the sound of funeral orations. One by one, the old comrades of the revolution were seen into the ground. The coffins were painted red. There were no priests and no prayers. Innumerable men and women were committed to the Russian earth. Lenin buried them all. Thousands upon thousands had died at the hands of those who opposed the revolution and of those who made it. There's no birth, they say, without pain. Sometimes in those ruinous days, it must have seemed to Vladimir Ilyich that the price had been woefully high. There was, of course, a time and a place for symbolism, for the ceremonial laying of stones. Even revolutionary Russia places much value on ritual. Lenin could find time to inscribe plants and formally consecrate them to communism. But there was so much more to be done. In the military field, said Lenin, we've won a complete victory. Now we must prepare for an even more difficult victory. The nation had virtually to be rebuilt, almost from the foundations, and almost the only machine in all the country to help was an inheritance of the war. There may have been some ironic symbolism as a byproduct, but the only thing that worked in Russia was a captured British tank. Lenin spoke endlessly throughout it all. Exhorting, insisting, demanding, arguing. It may have been rhetoric. Perhaps none of the Russians had any choice. The fact is that somehow or other this terrible job was done. The broken bones of the country were knit together with nothing except hands and feet and muscles and endurance. The simple hard technology of inexhaustible manpower. Life crept back to a semblance of normal, the elementary processes of peasant economy. The Smolensky market was in business again. It wasn't much, but it was something. It was now the end of isolation. The first Soviet state was gradually becoming the focus of one world attitude at least. At the Congress of the Communist International in Moscow, the delegates from 39 countries debated the program by which they were to overcome the world. They and the Bolshevik pioneers, Radhek, Dinoviev, Noncharsky, Litvinov, the old guard, and the new, including the American John Reed, journalist and historian of his time. Inside, they made their own history. Marx's old friend Clara Zetkin, On her right, the Japanese communist, Sen Yatayama. On her left, Zinoviev. Then, Smarov, leader of the Czechs. At the hub, always, Lenin projected his non-stop combination of magnetism and charm and petulant authority with that characteristic thrusting gesture of the shoulders and the chin, the dominating oratory of a man who said everything so often that it merely remained to say it again and again. It was his manner, as with many a personally modest man of extravagant powers, to retreat, as they say, into the limelight. By crouching inconspicuously to write his notes in an obscure corner, he was assured of a maximum attention. Here was the apogee of Vladimir Ilyich, the summit of his tempestuous and uncompromising career. His sickness came quite suddenly. In 1922, his first stroke laid him low. He went to recover in the small estate in the village of Gorky. It was a haemorrhage of the brain, but it was not necessarily of great danger. he seemed to rally, and very soon he was talking as vigorously as ever, or nearly. He rested in Gorky with his wife, Krupskaya, relaxed with local children, was visited by the party's secretary-general, the young Joseph Stalin. That year he seemed to recover, hastened back to Moscow, to the Council of People's Commissars, to the Central Committee, to the Central Executive. To Lenin it was hard to accept that the business of the Soviet would continue without him. But by the end of the year, in the bitter winter, the second stroke failed him once again. And once again Krupskaya took him back to Gorky, to the snowbound villa where, in the silence of paralysis, he was to come to an end. So, at half past six on the evening of January the 21st, 1924, in the 54th year of his tireless, tormented and triumphant life, Vladimir Ilyich Lenin died of a sclerosis of the brain. They took him back to Moscow, gripped in the ferocity of the numbing winter's cold. No king, no emperor, no tsar, perhaps no other human being was ever so saluted at his death. He'd been many things in his time, all to one compelling and obsessive end. Through him, many had lived who would otherwise have died. Many had died who would otherwise have lived. They set what was left of Lenin in the Red Square, and there, in body, he lies to this day of vladimir lenin it was once said by winston churchill the russian people's worst misfortune was his birth their next worst his death one could admire the neatness of the paradox and wonder the half century that separated that birth and that death transformed everything but for what neither we nor russia have lived long enough to know
0: Das war der Radierevan. This was Radierevan. Radierevan heute mit Wer war der Herr Ulianov? Mit Beiträgen unter anderem von Van Chomsky, Pesti Barlon, Musik von Rupert Huber, Soundscape aus der Slowakei, Deutschland und Russland. Ja. This was Rady Yerevan today with who is, who was this Mr. Ulyanov with uh, the help of Chomsky, the music of Rupert Huber sounds from Slovakia, Germany and Russia. This was Rady Yerevan. This was Rady Yerevan. Stay tuned. Lassen Sie den Radio eingeschalten. Brems dran!